Okay, good afternoon everyone and welcome. It's great to see you by the Yom Limud. Today we're going to discuss the Educator's Handbook, the methodology of educating, connecting and disciplining through the lens of the Torah. And we're going to essentially start off by discussing how teaching has existed for thousands of years. And starting from Moses, Moses is the first teacher for the Jewish people and throughout, the Jewish people have always had leaders, always have had educators. And so let's just look at some of the history, some of the lessons that the Torah itself has to offer. My name is Rabbi Schneer Wilhelm and I'm the current principal at Maimonides Jewish Day School. And thank you all for joining. So on the front page you could see a picture of the shtetl. By raise of hands, is everyone familiar with the word shtetl, old city Europe? So on the front page of the, of the booklet, the Educator's Handbook, you can see that picture. And again, let's go ahead and see what were some of those trade secrets that our mothers and fathers throughout the generations always had. Ramban, Ramoshe ben Nachman, the Nachmanides, lived about a thousand years ago. And he had a student named Avner. Avner, unfortunately, decided he's going to completely separate from the Jewish religion. He became a, an important figure and he decided not only is he going to separate, but he's going to bring in his very own teacher, Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman Nachmanides, and he's going to, on the holiest day of the year, Yom Kippur, slaughter a chazir, uh, a, a pig, in front of him and eat it. He wanted to kind of teach his teacher a lesson. His teacher is sitting there and the discussion that happened at the time was very fascinating. He was literally trying to incite his teacher. And his teacher finally turns to him and he says, So what caused this drift? Why did you move away? And he shares, he says, Well, the, one of the last Torah portions is called Ha'azinu. Parshat Ha'azinu in the Torah. If you're familiar with the way it looks in the Torah, it's the only place in the Torah that in one column... The Torah, port, the Torah is broken up into columns. This is the only place in the Torah that instead of one column, it has two columns. It's written, supposed to be written like a song. Parshat Hazinu. And his Avner turns to the Reb Moshe and he says, I went off the path because you as a teacher told us that in this few columns of Hazinu is the whole Anything in the world could be found within it. Anything that will ever happen that happened, any lesson can be found in these four columns. And he says, that completely turned me off. It's false, it never happened, and I ran away. Ramosha says, okay, try, test me. Test me out. Avner says, find my name inside of Parshat Hazinu. Inside of these four columns, find me my name. By raise of hand, how many people are familiar with Hebrew? Beautiful. So if you're not, and the reason I don't want you at all to feel uncomfortable, I'd like you to look inside of figure number one on page number two. And this is two lines. And as you can see, those two columns from this Parshat Ha'azinu. It's, it's from the Torah, that's why there's no vowels. We're on page number two, figure number one. And if you look at the left column, it says, Amarti af ehem ashbisa me'enosh zichram. The third letter of these five words. Let's go through the third letter of each one of these five words. Is could anyone tell me what are the what is the third letter of each word? It's highlighted. Yeah. Reish. Mm -hmm. Good. 
Good? Good? Could anyone tell me that in one word? Rav Avner. Rav Avner, Rabbi Avner. So Ramosha ben Nachman, he turns to Avner, he says, your name is written in the Torah. And it's even written with the title Rabbi. Avner, he took a step back and he realized he had made a grave mistake. And that, that correctly so, the famous Nachmanides had said correctly, everything could be found within the Torah. And he did appropriate Teshuvah. And that is why the Torah itself calls him Rabbi Avner, because the Torah already knew when he was born that he would go ahead and later on connect and return to Judaism. Fascinating story, but the message is that when we're going to look inside the Torah, we could find anything, if, including, of course, and primarily to teach, because we all know in the Shema we say, Vishinantam Levanecha Vidibarta Bam, one of the foremost characters of, of, of Judaism is that we teach one another, we're responsible for one another, we communicate to one another. I once was told, to educate really means to communicate. An educator is a communicator. You can't communicate, unfortunately, unfortunately you can't educate. Talking and educating don't have, to, don't have to work together. You could not talk the same language and still communicate with someone else, of course. Okay, well let's, before we go ahead into the actual seven steps of education, let's look at two quotes from the Torah that will help us on our path. Number one famous quote. How many of you have heard this one? Tehillah is familiar, beautiful. It's from Proverbs 22.8. The verse says, actually, can you read it for us in English? Train the child according to his way. Even when he grows old, he will not turn away. Fantastic. King Solomon Shlomo HaMelech already said, differentiation. The first thing we have to do is train a child according to his level. This was written thousands of years ago. We have to train each child according to his level and only then and only then will we succeed in our education. We have over here in number two. Um, Robin, would you mind reading number two? Just as wearing tefillin every day is a mitzvah commanded by the Torah to every individual regardless of his standing in Torah, whether deeply learned or simple, so too is it an absolute duty for every person to spend a half hour every day thinking about the Torah education of children and to do everything in his power and beyond his power to inspire children to follow the path along which they are guided. This is absolutely tremendous. The Torah is telling us. It doesn't say your child. It says it is our responsibility, each one of us, to spend a half hour. We all know how, how long a half hour is. This is a tremendous amount of time. To spend a half hour thinking about education, education of the youth. So education of the youth is, youth is of primary importance. And of course, I, I don't want to focus on the youth. Meaning, of course, we have to educate everyone. But if we want to be able to succeed in life, if we educate the youth, automatically we will have uh, a world that is educated. Half hour. Tremendous. It is our responsibility to go ahead and teach with, the, with differentiation, but it's certainly, of course, to spend time. Oftentimes we walk into the classroom, we may have been prepared from past years, but in truth we have to think about our new audience, think about our new students, and not just say, oh, I have a lesson from four years ago, let's just suit it into this class. Something to be aware of. Now, one thing I love about this group here called Portland Area Jewish Educators is that it is called educators, it is not called teachers. Let me share with you what it says. I was looking in some dictionaries and here are quotes of what a teacher is and what an educator is. A teacher. A teacher is one whose occupation is to instruct. An instructor is a person 
who teaches a subject or skill. Now let me ask you, what is the difference between a teacher and an educator? What, what is Grace? Could you share with us what's the difference between a teacher and an educator? And, and you know, before you go ahead, Grace, I want to share with you the Hebrew words. Because those familiar with Hebrew may kind of get a sense of something else. What is a teacher called in Hebrew? A mora. What is a, an educator called? How do you say education in Hebrew? Chinuch. Mechanech. So think about, the, if you're familiar with the Hebrew, think about the difference between a mora and a mechanech. So yes, back, back to you, Grace. What's the difference? Well, an educator could be anyone. Okay. If a teacher is um, your occupation, an educator could be someone, it could be your parents, it could be your grandparents, it could be a friend that you learn something from. Hey, I like that. So you're saying teacher perhaps would be as a profession, an educator would be even a one-on-one -on -one individual attention. Fascinating point. Anyone else want to clarify? Yes, please. Well, from what you read, I think that the teacher is the instructor, and perhaps the educator would be somebody that might enlighten. A teacher is an instructor, an educator is an enlightener. Could you cl clarify, perhaps? Like, in other words, like uh, I guess when I say an instructor, instructor of a certain skill, and an educator might be somebody that would go um, deeper meaning and enlightening. Okay, so maybe a teacher teaches the base skill and an educator teaches something deeper to that? Fascinating point, please. Um, what, what is the definition of rabbi? I thought that was also teacher. Rav, Rav is an instructor. So I'm just trying to think of that, you know, shedding light that goes along with your idea of educator, rabbi. Mm -hmm. Now that's a fascinating point. Interesting, Rav also means to add, like riboy. So to add knowledge, to add context, etc. So that would per certainly go with what we're saying here. I'd like to give you a moment, if you would, please, to look at number four in your handout. And uh, maybe we'll give one minute, and if someone after that could clarify, what is the difference between a teacher and an educator? I'll put on the timer for one minute. Anyone's comfortable sharing, please. Well, it sounds like a teacher teaches skills, whereas an educator, it's more of a like a guider. Correct. Um, so that you kind of guide the children. Exactly. Now, and I want to go back to. Could be that in English the terminology won't work, but when we're going to talk in Hebrew as a moraz, a teacher, and a mechanech, an educator, what well, we are, we are mechanchim, we're educators. To educate means not to instruct. It means much more than that. And like we learn here, if you went to learn a specific trade and the man was unsuccessful, you went to a, the craftsman didn't teach you that trade, no real harm done. You go to someone else. If you went to a kindergarten and for one year you wait, a child wasted away, harm was done. Unfortunately, sometimes irreversible harm. An educator is someone that doesn't look at the child just at his... Um, Academics are just at his skills. An educator is someone that looks at the whole child.
And the two details set over here is number one is to teach means to look at the instruction. Again, if, and therefore, if you weren't successful, no harm done. To educate means to look at his deeds, his actions, his essence. And if you have not been successful, a lot of harm, unfortunately, has been done. Let me give you an example of a teacher, Aristotle. Everyone here is familiar with Aristotle. Unfortunately, he was once found in a very inappropriate place. And his students came to him and they said, how could you be here? He said, well, right now I'm not Aristotle. I'm Aristotle when I'm in the classroom. I'm not Aristotle right now. That's a teacher. A teacher is someone who will teach philosophy, but they are not teaching the person. They're not educating the person's being. There was once two parrots. One of the parrots lived in Shul, in the synagogue, and he would respond to whatever was said. And he, so he became familiar with blessings. To have a bless, and he, the parrot also became familiar with saying the response after a blessing, which is, Amen. This parrot was a professional at saying Amen. Another parrot, unfortunately, lived next to a home of a couple which constantly cursed. And this parrot constantly cursed. So, the, the man who now buys the cursing parrot has a brilliant brainstorm. He takes the parrot to the shul. And he says, look, look, come to shul and listen to all the blessings. And a few weeks later, someone checks in with this man. He says, how is it going? He says, it's horrible. My parrot curses, and the other parrot says, Amen. <laughs> so, th this is an educator. An educator is someone just teaching intellect, philosophy. That's not our job here. We're educators. We are not teachers. We're much more than that. We have to go ahead and teach people how to live and how to be. Today, this is something that's coming more and more. We're seeing this more in the classroom. It's all every day people are saying more how we have to look at the whole child, the social, the, the dynamics of the classroom. So this is on the table. It's on the front burner today. But it certainly was always on the front burner within the Torah guidelines that we have to go ahead and capture the essence of the child. Are there any questions? No. Okay. Let's now go ahead and look at page number four, this, oh, actually I'd like to show you the quote, fascinating quote on page number three, from Job, Eov, a man who unfortunately his entire life suffered. The book of Job. He shares, man is born like a wild young donkey. A young child is like a wild young donkey, he says. And it's our task as educators not to make that donkey smart, but to make that a young, mature human being. Okay, section number two, page number four, self-assessment of the educator. There were two people, both with the name Moses, Moshe. One of them was called the long Moshe, the tall Moshe, and the short Moshe. One was the long Mo the tall Moshe was wealthy, the short Moshe was unfortunately poor. The wealthy, the tall Moshe, he had a big shipment of, sh of boats coming into the port full of merchandise. The short Moshe, he had one small boat that had his entire fortune on there. And they were both coming and all of a sudden a message comes to the short Moshe that your boat has drowned. Okay, they go and tell the short Moshe your boat has drowned and he faints. That's his, that's his whole livelihood has been invested in this boat. He faints. They pour water on him, he wakes up again. He remembers what happened and he faints again. He can't handle it in a third time. It's too much for him to handle. They run, they go ahead and they ask the advice of the local town rabbi, and the rabbi says, go and whisper in his ear, it was a mistake. It was really the boat of the tall Moshe. And they do so. And the man wakes up, everything is fine. A few days later they find out that truthfully, tall Moshe's boats had sunk. 
So they go to the rabbi, they said, Rabbi, how did you figure that out? How did you know? Are you a prophet? How did you know that the sunken mer merchandise did not belong to short Moshe? And he says it was, it was easy. God will never give someone something that they cannot handle. That Moshe was about to die. He, tru he truly was. He was on the floor. He could not handle the burden of knowing that his entire merchandise is gone. He was about to die. And when I saw that, I knew that so obviously there was a mistake and it was not his items. God will never give us something that we cannot handle. The, the Tzahal, Tzahal Haganali Israel, the Israeli army, at one point had a group, and very, very often they do it, they have, stu they have wounded soldiers come to America on a trip to enjoy. Unfortunately, they're wounded, they're handicapped, and they take them on trips. They once brought them on a trip to Brooklyn, New York, and an audience was arranged where they would go and meet the Lubavitcher Rebbe. They go inside of the room, and the Rebbe says, he says, I don't understand. Why are you called the wounded soldiers? You should be called the elite soldiers. Why? I one time shared this story and someone got mad at me. He says, the Rebbe is just playing around. It's a fake. It, they, they're wounded. No. Because if someone, God forbid, has a challenge, that means that they have something special within them. Some special dynamic, some special force, some special energy allowing them to live. And this is very practical. We all know, unfortunately, if one person is wounded in, in for example, one hand, his other hand all of a sudden will have new energy. I know of a plumber I personally know him, a one-handed plumber. His other hand is crippled. It's something that's practically impossible, but he's able to do it. If, if, unfortunately, someone is in a predicament, they have to know that that means God gave them the energy to get through it. So, when we're going to talk about ourselves as educators, we do need to know we all have faults. We do all have faults. We all, and therefore, if we look at quote number five, um, Lilka, could you read quote number five, please, for us? The Holy One, blessed be He, does not confront His creatures with unreasonable demands. We'll never get something that's unreasonable. Putting this together, at the same time we need to know that we ourselves have qualities and deficiencies and we have to recognize we have the ability to overpower those deficiencies. That's the message here. The second detail of being an educator is to know that we have the ability to succeed in our task. But we have to try. We are going to have to go ahead and put in some effort to make this happen. Reish Lakish, Reb Shimon ben Lakish, he was one of the authors of the Talmud. And I'd like to read, you, to, read to you his biography, so to say, a short paragraph. It reads like this. Shimon ben Lakish was an author of the Talmud who lived in the Roman province of Syria in the 3rd century. He was born in, ba in Basra, east of the Jordan River, around 200 common era, but lived most of his life in a separate place. He was, in his early youth, a bandit and a gladiator. A story happened which later on brought him back to his heritage and he was able to go ahead and do proper repentance for his past life. No matter where we are in our lives, we always have the ability to completely come back. So as educators, it is our task to know that we may have deficiencies, but we certainly have the ability to go ahead and work them through. 
Let's now go ahead to page number five. Let's talk about the third, the third prerequisite of being an educator. And it's interesting to note, before we talk about how we teach, we're first going to talk about, in this order, about the respect of educators towards the pupil. And again, today this is something that is coming to the fore, but unfortunately 50, 60, 70 years ago this didn't really exist, the respect of the educator towards the pupil. We have to truly love our pupils, we have to truly um, respect them in order to connect with them. Is there anyone here that could share perhaps a story where, where they were challenged, but the second they went ahead and made that connection, it all fell apart? Let me repeat this. Could someone share a story where they had a challenging student, and maybe they one time took them to lunch, or they, one time, they started giving them more attention, and the challenge disappeared. I'm sure we're all from, we all have these stories within us. Anyone? It happens with me almost every year. Where there's one child who, who is rebellious or struggles, and then he'll find something in my teaching, or even in our personal life, we'll find something to connect with, and then it, he'll turn around. But it's not always consistent, so sometimes... Like this one child loved the days that we studied Torah. So, but on the days that we weren't studying Torah, he would sometimes still present his more difficult side. That makes a lot of sense. And that's something we, it is a challenge that we deal with. But one thing we know is the more we respect the children, the more the children will respect, with, will respect us. And of course, this comes with knowing our boundaries, knowing that we are the teacher, we're here to educate them, they're not here to educate us, etc. Let's look at quote number seven. Um, would you mind reading quote number seven, please? Uh, my father wrote in a letter, Cherish criticism, for it will place you in the true place. Rabbi Shalom Dov Ber, a rabbi about 150 years ago, he says, Cherish criticism, <laughs> Cherish criticism for it will place you on the true heights. And it's so true. If we're not going to listen to people criticize us, we'll never be able to know how we need to grow. That does not mean we should allow people to scream at us. It means, of course, it should be respectful criticism. It should be said appropriately. But we need to be open to listening to others. Without being open to listening to, without listening to others, we're not going to be able to properly assess ourselves and see where we are holding. Over here, there are four details set out that every educator needs to do to properly be able to connect with his students. Um, Suzanne, mm -hmm. could you, do you mind reading the first step of an educator, page five, bottom? Uh, number eight? Yeah, in the middle. Okay. Not everyone who would step forward to assume the designation of educator or counselor can accept this great responsibility. Since an unsuitable person not only fails to correct anything, but in addition makes things worse, the full blame for doing so. This is what we said earlier, right at the beginning, the difference between a teacher and an educator. If you don't succeed in education, you are going to be, you're going to be blamed for that child's mistake. If we were teachers, it's easy, to, it's easy to fix it up. Now, we are allowed to make mistakes, but we have to be trying our best to not make any mistakes. So yes, we do as teachers, we are taking upon ourselves this serious <coughs> responsibility. Tila, do you mind continuing the first step? The first step of an educator or counselor in preparing for this highly responsible and holy work of education and guidance is introspection. Okay, we're now going to learn four things that every educator needs to think about. Um, Cheryl? Um, one, an incisive self critique of his teaching and its style. So the first thing we need to do is we need to just think, how are we teaching? Soon we're going to learn about your methodology, etc. But first thing is, 
how are we teaching? How are we getting up there? How are we standing? How are we presenting ourselves? Um, Robin, do you mind continuing? <coughs> Review his methodology to ensure that it is characterized by consummate, deliberate, this is very important. I, I once heard someone share, he says, the more times you repeat something, as a teacher, the better you know it. Not the better the, stu not the, better the students will know it. Again, the more we repeat something, it's the less the students know it. So the first, the second thing we need to do is we need to be able to make sure that we have thought how we're going to present something. The Talmud shares with us that le'olam yishane adam a teacher must always go ahead and say as few words possible and pack it all in that. Now sometimes we have a lesson and we finished what we wanted to say and we have another 20 minutes. It would be better to do something else than go ahead and just review or drive the students mad unless there's a reason for it. Of course, if you want to go ahead and assess them, beautiful. But to just go ahead and talk because you have to fill time, you're going to lose the students rather than go ahead and bring them back in. Number three, um, Robin, you just read? Mm -hmm. um, Grace, please. Sure. The fruit of education does not grow overnight. To reach any milestone as a pupil demands extraordinary effort and an appropriate amount of time. Another very important point. Oftentimes we'll walk into a classroom and we'll feel unsuccessful. We've only been there for a week and we're all, already getting down. How could, we only get, how could we get down if we've only been there for a week? <laughs> and educating takes years. And I always love hearing from my teachers how they share their greatest nachaf pleasure is seeing their students 20 years later. You know, 20 years later you could assess, see what happened. And even then it's not a true assessment. You don't know what happened during those 20 years. But nonetheless, to go ahead and start feeling you know, down and bad and saying you don't know what you're doing after a very short amount of time is, is not fair. And it's also false. And more importantly, if you're going to constantly change your methods and not stick one through, your you won't get your students. Your students are going to be living in your previous method. Or we have to take something and be able to stick through it, and like we say over here, with deliberation and difference. Um, uh, sorry, as we say here, to give it extraordinary effort and an appropriate amount of time. Um, Suzanne, could I ask you again to read number four? Yeah, sure, but I was just thinking about what you said. Please. Like education, you know, sure. school for general education, they tell you that reflect, revise, and adjust. So if something's not working, it's sort of a flip to what you're saying. You always, as an educator, instructor, can re make revisions, teach, and reteach. So, so that's a good point. I mean, I think Suzanne is saying that we constantly have to be looking to assess ourselves. Does anyone want to share, perhaps, how that would fit with what we're saying here, that we have to be able to take something and stick with it? Or do they con conflict? Oh, could you restate the question? Sh sure. So we've said here, and, and to clarify, this, what we're learning here is a, is a quote from a book called The Principles of Education and Guidance. I highly uh, encourage all of you to buy it. You could buy it online. The Principles of Education and Guidance. And you could see that in most of the footnotes that it comes directly from there. So in this book written by Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak, he shares that one of the things teachers must know is that education takes time. So the question is being asked, here we're saying it takes time, we have to allow things to get into place. On the other hand, um, teachers and educators are told to constantly revise and reassess. So how do those two things work together? What's your thoughts? Um, I guess you have to try and make your methods fit within the shifting parameters. Interesting. Could you give an example? I think that some methods are valuable in any situation. So even if 
you're told that there are new uh, demands within the school that if you have effective teaching, uh, an effective pro approach to teaching, that it should be able to stand up in any situation. Okay, so, so when would you switch it? At what point do you say revise and, and redo? Um, I guess you can, I mean, I guess if you're, it, it depends on whether you're having success or not. So if it's, you can layer on to also methods to your own, so you're not completely undermining what you've had success with so far. I think that's a great idea, you can layer it together, that's a good point. Um, please. That's a great point, you know, by, by maybe year to year. Interesting point. Um, Grace, you want to share something? Well, I was just thinking, you know, with the, the fact that the education takes time and the fact of as educators you have to revise and review what you're doing, I think that's part of, it's saying that it takes time. You're not going to get it right immediately. You're not always going to have it be exactly what it's supposed to be. It takes time to develop that program because you're revising and reviewing and eventually you get to a point where you know your adjustments can be more minute than they would have been in the beginning. Um, but you know the act of educating a person can't be, it's not a static thing. It takes time, but it doesn't mean it sits the same way in time. Right, I think perhaps you're saying similar to what Suzanne was saying, that you have to constantly stagger it together, one layer on top of the other. Right. Um, and I'd like to perhaps bring this into the high holidays. I think it will, it will connect Perfectly. You know, we say that Elul, the month of Elul, which we're currently standing in, is a month of introspection. At the same time, we learn that every night, before we go to sleep, we're supposed to say, Kriyat Shemal Hamita, we're supposed to say a special prayer of introspection. Another example would be, we say we're judged on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, it's sealed. And yet, on the other hand, we pray every day so that God will give us blessing. Well, if, he, if the judgment is on Rosh Hashanah, so then, why do we pray every day? You know, if someone committed to a certain, um, a certain deal, so then you could trust it. If he says he'll give it to you, so why do we have to constantly come to God and, you know, request every day for good if he already made that, if he already made that sealed deal for us? Well, the way we get things, God has a, on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, he tells us what we're going to get, but he didn't tell us how we're going to get it. Best example would be money. Let's say on Rosh Hashanah, God decides we're going to make a million dollars. But, is that money going to go to expert doctors? Or will it go to be able to take a vacation? Will it go to be fixing your, your house, which should, you know, got a lot of damage, unfortunately? Or will it be go to remodeling your kitchen? Those are things that will happen every day. That will be something that God will decide. How that flow of energy that's supposed to come to you today will come, in a good or unfortunately the opposite. Bringing that back into education, every day, 
Every night we have to assess. We have to constantly revisit, reassess. But the, the, that is a very small assessment. That is an assessment that we're just going to be able to take what we learned that day and go ahead and use it for the next. But the altruistic in, um, in, in, um, introspect, introspection, the full sitting down and saying, I'm going to look through everything, and that's only once a year. You know, sometimes people, they, they constantly rethink some things, and, and the therapists will tell them, <laughs> not every day, maybe once, you know, and, and the same thing here. We, we, we have to be able to take a certain method and say, look, I'm going to try this out. You may say only for a few months, but we have to say we're going to try it out to the end. Every night we could go ahead and learn something for the next day, etc. And I think that would go ahead exactly with what uh, Suzanne said. Would that be correct? I, I think so. <laughs> okay, perfect. <laughs> I think one of the most fascinating things I learned while going through the principles of education and guidance is perhaps the last, the last paragraph, the last two paragraphs, and that is, you know, oftentimes you have very humble and appropriate teachers, and when it comes to something crass, they start, they'll say a curse word, which they think is a good method of teaching their, te teaching their class. You know, they'll, they'll say something truly negative, truly bad, and they'll curse that with a curse word. And what we learn here is that actually, even using curse words, even using negative um, vibes for something terrible is going to give a very bad feeling to your students. They're not going to respect you for that. And as it says in the bottom line on page number six, many educators and counselors uh, uh, make a mistake right in this place. That means we have to know that never should anything crass or inappropriate come out of our mouth. If we're upset, we're allowed to get upset, we're allowed to be frustrated, but never is there an excuse, even if it is something inappropriate, to go ahead and use inappropriate language, inappropriate terminology, inappropriate, um, you know, anything along those lines. Any questions? So, Rabbi Lu, he's a current teacher, Rabbi Shmuel Lu, he is uh, actually the head of school in in London, England. And he one time came and he asked the Rebbe, he says, when I'm in class, all of a sudden I'm able to, you know, guard myself. But I come home and I just get so mad at my kids. I scream at them. And I, 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 at school, I, I'm able to handle it, but when I come home, it's just too much. And I know I could relate to that. You know, <laughs> you come home, it's like you've had a full day. And the response he received was, we always have to think. And know that those children that you have are not your children, they're God's children. And just like when you're in the classroom, you know that they're God's children. You have that same energy. Even your own children, we need to, or how much more so your own children, you need to look at in that way and give that the same love and care. And I think it's something that, as educators, it's oftentimes very troubling and, and tough on us because... You know, we have that, uh, we're, we're able to collect ourselves when we're in, in the classroom. But the second we get home, oftentimes, you know, we hear stories where people, they kind of let loose. And there's certainly no excuse for that. Um, our, our children lose out tremendously and something we have to constantly guard ourselves for. So, we're now up to the fourth pillar of education and perhaps the most important, and that is assessment or evaluation of the pupil. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, how many people here, if by raise of hand, familiar with Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai? He's the author of the Zohar. He authored the Kabbalah. Kabbalah. And if you're familiar with the holiday of Lag Omer, the 33rd day of the Omer, the bonfires, etc., that is his day of passing. He was in a cave for... Anyone? 13. 13 years. He was in a cave for 13 years. Well, really, he was in a cave for 12 years. 
And he came out with his son out of the cave. His son was named Rabbi Elazar. And they come out of the cave and the Talmud shares with us that they had spent the last 12 years in the cave just learning Torah, learning Kabbalah. Not only that, they had used the sand to cover themselves as clothing. There was a tree. There was a, I believe it was a, a carob tree. That's why we carob. Thank you, Allah Omar. There was a carob tree that they would eat. They had everything there. Their whole life was Torah study. And they come out and they see a man plowing a field. And the Talmud shares that Rabbi, that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, his son, he looked at that man who was plowing, who was doing mundane physical work, and the man died. And so Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai said, I think we need to go back to the cave. And they went back for another year. Oh, I forgot to add. Rabbi Shimon ba- the, the Talmud shares that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai looked at that man and brought him back to life. But anyways, they go back to the cave for one more year. They come out, and the first thing Rabbi Shem does, he comes to the city, he says, I want to do something good. I've been away. What's the best thing I could do for you? If you're familiar, a Kohen, a priest, is not supposed to go into a cemetery. They're not supposed to become, to accept upon themselves ritual impurity um, in, within a cemetery. And... Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai comes back to the city and says, how could I be of help? And the people there share. They say, within this big area here, there is a dead body. We don't know exactly where. Now the thing is, because we don't know exactly where, the priests, they have to go all the way around. And it takes a long time. Could you help us? And he goes ahead and he was able to show them exactly where the dead body lied. They put around it a little fence. And now the Kohanim, the priests, were able to go straight from section A to section B of the city. The first thing he did was he wanted to help. But primarily what I wanted to share with you about Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was that he went ahead and he studied Torah. He didn't, get ahead, go, he didn't have a business. And the Talmud tells us, and let's look at that in number 9. Um, do my reading number 9, Lilka, please. Many attempted to emulate the ways of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. This is a very important point. Many people tried to emulate his ways and they were not successful. We have to all know that although something works for one person, that does not at all mean that it will work for the second. Because, <laughs> scary quote right here, the Mishnah. The Mishnah says that the best doctors go to Gehenim. You familiar with the word Gehenim? No. Gehenim is hell. The Mishnah says the best doctors go to Gehenim. So all the commentators say the best doctors? What are you talking about? The best doctors go to heaven. They go to Gan Eden. They go to Gehenna. What does the mission mean? It says sometimes the best doctors, how do they become the best doctors? They would take certain people that they didn't care about and they would try things on them. They would try experiments. If they're trying an experiment for a good reason, fine. But if the best doctor learned from doing unfortunate things on others, that's certainly something that's unacceptable. Well, when it comes to teaching, just because something su- we succeeded in a certain path with person A, or child A, certainly does not mean that that will work with child B. I mean, I certainly could share with you many incidents like this, and uh, could anyone here share with us an incident where they were successful, or how about they were unsuccessful with one child, and they tried that same method with the second, and they were successful. Cheryl, you've had such an experience? I didn't, but I have. I think, um, when you were talking before, I was thinking about my daughter, and she had, um, I don't know, middle school or high school was having a problem with math, hmm. and the teacher, um, which was quoted back here somewhere, would pretty much give the same answer or the same 
um, uh, uh, the how to do it as they did the first time. So of course she still didn't get it because it, um, and, and I have found this, that sometimes when, I think you said you have to revisit, revise, he needed, in other words, if he was a, a master of math, this is kind of what I thought, then he should be able to explain it in a way that not just her, but my other children might, might understand also, as opposed to maybe he got to 12 out of the 30 students, but he did not get to the other 18, <laughs> So, which we were just talking about before. But that's what I was thinking. And that's a great point. Of course, if we were unsuccessful the first time, don't repeat it the second time. Um, so when we talk about assessment, thank you, Cheryl. When we talk about assessment of the students, so a few points I want to point out. Number one is my sister-in-law, um, she won the, the spelling bee for the state of South Carolina a few years ago. And she shared with us that she had not studied very much for this. This was something she was talented with. Um, and, and the reason I share this is because she shared that in that room, there was so much tension. The, the parents had put so much pressure on their child. You could feel that pressure. And if a child got out, life ended. You know, it was like, sometimes we're, we're, do, we're putting missions onto our children. We're telling them, when you grow up, I want you to be a doctor. It's not even feasible. It's not even respectful. It's not something that that child could do. And rather than giving them the energy to do that, unfortunately, sometimes when the child will get 20, they'll say, I still have this hard feeling because my parent wants me to be a doctor and I know I'll never do that, you know, etc. So that's something that we certainly have to be careful of as parents, as educators, to go ahead and truly we, we have to um, always shoot for the stars, of course, give our children something greater than what they where they currently are, but at the same time make sure it's something that is feasible and practical. On that same note, there was once uh, a lawyer who came to his advisor, and he was sharing with him a story. He says, there's two ways I could, I could you know, transform this story. I could say method A, method B, and his advisor says, what about just saying the plain old truth? He says, I never thought about that. You know, sometimes we have to, when, when looking at each child, we certainly have to take them for what they are, who they are, and um, be able to, pre to prepare and plan our lessons accordingly. So I'd like to put it all together, what we've learned so far. Please take this home and you could continue looking at the words of the principles of education and guidance. We've gone through the first, um, the first four steps. We had the introduction where we shared that everything is within the Torah, that we shared the point of differentiation. From the quote of King Solomon, we share the idea of spending a half hour a day on education, not only of our own children, but of any, of any child, how we're going to educate them. We spoke about the difference between education and, and being a teacher, which is a very important point. We're not only looking at the intellectual, the um, academics, it's something we're looking at, their social, their emotional, etc. We continued on to talk how we have to assess ourselves, how are we doing? We have to cherish criticism. We have to allow our students to, to relate to us how things are going. If a student says, teacher, I didn't understand, don't just shoot them down and say, oh, oh you weren't listening. Maybe they weren't. But make sure that when, we're, when they're giving us feedback that we take it appropriately. And, and finally, the last point that we discussed together was evaluation of the pupil. Just to look at the titles of the next few sections, we have to work on our relationship with students. Um, I think it's very fascinating. On page 8, section A, it says, An educator of counselor's exalted stature in the eyes of his pupil. We are not friends to our students. 
We are their teacher, their educator, and we have to make sure that they look to us in that method. Unfortunately, the, sec- the day we become our students' friends, then we're on their same level. They could talk to us like we could talk to them, and they could do whatever they want. We have to make sure to always keep that exalted st- stature, again, not at all to um, separate from them. We have to be with them, we're allowed to play with them, we're allowed to interact with them, but to make sure that we, we demand that respect, um, deliver... On page 9, we have point 6, deliberate reflection on what is becoming, unbecoming, and our approaches and methods of teaching. On page number 12, prioritization and educational approaches, a very fascinating point, that if there's a student that is challenged with two major issues, for example, unfortunately they're stealing, and they're talking crudely, well, we can't come and try and crack down on both of them. We have to take one issue at a time, because if we take both, we're going to actually just crash down on them rather than educating them, rather than going ahead and uh, guiding them in the appropriate method. And lastly, I think it's very fascinating, on page 13 we conclude talking about a re- reward and punishment. In today's society, a lot of discipline programs say there's no, we can't reward anymore. They're coming and saying we don't want our students to become reward junkies. That's a quote used. And I, I agree with that point, certainly, but in Torah we need to know one of the principles of faith. Maimonides has 13 principles of faith, and one of those principles, and just to read it together, on page number 13, number 15, um, Tehillah, do you mind reading on page number 13, quote number 15. I believe with complete faith that the Creator, blessed be His name, rewards those who observe His commandments and punishes those who transgress His commandments. One of the 13 principles of faith is reward and punishment. And the same thing when we're looking at students, we certainly do need to have that reward and punishment system. Now, punishment, I know, is perhaps something we could rephrase that. We could say reward and consequence, however you want to phrase that. But we certainly need to be able to have these two dynamics within our classroom. Are there any questions? No, it's been a real pleasure, everyone. Thank you for coming.